0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by rare bird books, publisher of water wasted. The new novel by Alex Branson water wasted is about love and loss, grief, and the passage of time. It's about the shocking death of a teenage boy In a small town, and the impact that it has on a couple who is still mourning the death of their own daughter nearly a decade earlier. Blending whimsy and wonder with a mix of mayhem and malevolence, Water Wasted takes readers on a tour of loss, redemption, and the great unknown. Water Wasted by Alex Branson, available now from Rare Bird Books. Hey folks, how you doing? Welcome to the Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy. It's nice to be with you. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm staring at a uh, gingerbread house. My son made me a gingerbread house and he gave it to me and he insisted that I bring it in here. And uh, I want to eat it. I have an interesting episode for you today. I have Michael Schumacher on the program. He wrote a a critical biography of Allen Ginsberg called Dharma Lion, and he has edited several volumes of Ginsberg's journals, including a recent uh, collection or a recent collection of Ginsberg's journals called The Fall of America, Uh, The Fall of America Journals, excuse me, 1965 to 1971. The Fall of America Journals, 1965 to 1971, just out from the University of Minnesota Press. I had a great conversation with Michael Schumacher. That's coming up in just a moment. Allen Ginsberg was perhaps the most famous and influential American poet of the 20th century. You know, these kinds of things are always up for debate, but it's hard not to have him up there at the top of the list. Ginsberg died in the 90s, in, in uh, 1997, in New York City. He was 70 years old. It's hard to believe. He's been gone for more than 20 years, and his work uh, continues to be read. It continues to be anthologized, and it continues to be influential. And uh, I thought it might be nice to share some of Alan's work here at the top of the show and to share some of his musical work, which I don't think everybody is necessarily familiar with. Ginsburg had musical ambitions, and uh, in his lifetime was— collaborating with people like Bob Dylan, Philip Glass, Paul McCartney, and here you're going to hear a track uh, called The Ballad of the Skeletons, which was, I think, recorded in the 1990s. On this track, you will uh, hear Paul McCartney, Lenny Kaye, and Philip Glass in accompaniment, with, uh, obviously with Ginsburg doing the vocals. So this is The Ballad of the Skeletons.
1: Said the presidential skeleton, I won't sign the bill. Said the speaker's skeleton, yes you will. Said the representative skeleton, I object. Said the Supreme Court skeleton, what do you expect? star bombs said the upper class skeleton starve unmarried moms said the yahoo skeleton stop dirty art said the right wing skeleton forget about your heart
0: all right so once again that is alan Ginsberg performing uh, the ballad of the skeletons with some help from paul mccartney lenny k and philip glass It is now my pleasure to bring you Michael Schumacher, Allen's biographer. He wrote a biography called Dharma Lion, published uh, a while back, an excellent biography of Allen Ginsberg, also available from the University of Minnesota Press. And now, just recently, Michael Schumacher has edited the Fall of America Journals 1965 1971, a new collection of journals from Allen Ginsberg that adds further illumination to the life and career of one of America's major poets. I had a great conversation with Michael about Allen Ginsberg's life, his work, his many uh, friendships in literature and music and art, the beat generation, all of it. Michael was a, a friend of Allen's and knew him personally and offers a lot of insight and great stories and it was just a joy to talk with him. So this is Michael Schumacher, and one more time, Mr. Schumacher is the editor of Allen Ginsberg's The Fall of America Journals, 1965 to 1971, available now from the University of Minnesota Press.
2: I was, for a while, I was Writer's Digest magazine, uh, the magazine for writers. Uh, I was their author interview guy, They'd send me out, like I interviewed Joseph Heller and Kurt Vonnegut and Norman Mailer and Joyce Carol Oates and all these people for the magazine. And I'm going, how bad is this? They're paying me to, to, to talk to people that I admire. Is that how you met Alan? Actually, uh, no. It's really funny. I did interview him for Writer's Digest, but I met Alan uh, for another magazine They wanted me, and and Alan was so thrilled by it. The magazine was back when Hugh Hefner owned We Magazine, you know, and Playboy owned We. Um, They wanted an interview of Alan talking about his music. And nobody ever treated Alan's music very seriously. Uh, And all of a sudden, here I was interviewing him uh, about that and that exclusively. And that really opened the floodgates for me because after that interview he trusted me you know it it was really odd anytime i wanted to talk to him i was welcome to do so and uh when i started working on the biography a few years later um you know he'd be in you know it's really funny and this is really odd for as well as i knew alan and i knew him very very well by the end of his life and as many times as i interviewed him I never one time interviewed him in New York. I always got him on the road, which was good in the respect that he wasn't easily interrupted. You know, he'd be in a hotel room somewhere or we'd be out to eat lunch or something. And, you know, I could talk to him without any interruption, which was kind of cool. but when I think back, he wanted to do interviews in New York and I always turned him down. Uh, he, he, Alan was a night owl, and he he wanted to like do interviews like two thirty, three o'clock in the morning, in his neck of the woods. And I said, Alan, I'm not coming down there. He got <laughs> he got mugged a couple of times in his own neighborhood. You know that was a rough neighborhood back in those days. Not so much anymore, but it was then, and because uh, there were, there were, there was what they called Alphabet City, which was it was really just. One four block shooting gallery. It was all burned out buildings and stuff. That's all been redone. And so I knew life had changed in New York when I went to Alphabet City the first year when they had uh, Starbucks. I went, <laughs> okay, then uh, things are a little different. Right. But it was it was rough, and I just wouldn't go down there, you know, and uh, take my chances in in that neighborhood. And I've been out in New York at all times and night. Uh, but that neighborhood was especially tough, and uh, Alan didn't seem to mind it. But he was staying home too.
0: Yeah, he that was just hurt. He, he was just in his he apartment. Was home. What? Uh, what? What were your like? What was it like to be in his presence? And what were some of your early impressions of him as a man?
2: You know, as as a man, I was always impressed by what a decent person he was. He doesn't get that. There were several things about Allen that people don't understand. First of all, his, his decency. He wasn't, you know, people remember some of the crazy stuff. Cause I remember being in an argument with him and Lawrence, Furling Uh, they were on one side and Bob Rosenthal who ran Allen's office. And I were on another one out in Boulder when Allen and Furling in the middle of a, a big week devoted to Allen, uh, decided to come out, uh, in support of Nambla. And our argument was, is I, I understood because they were arguing it as a freedom of speech issue. I understood it, but like I told Alan, I stand by it. Uh, you couldn't win that argument. You cannot win that argument because I don't care who you were, but Alan, you know, he wasn't interested in, in, in young boys and all this other stuff. But he, he was interested in people having the opportunity to discuss their interests or whatever. So that became a big issue. But Alan was never, ever given, and this is a lead-in to answer your question, one of my impressions about him was he was never given real, real uh, credit for the great courage that he had.
0: Yeah, that that strikes me. Uh, I mean, that's always struck me about him and his work. But in reading about his life and and work in mm-hmm. the biography, um, the the relentless and fearless self documentation in the journals, absolutely. But also in his public facing life, in interviews, in his work, in the work itself, there. Yeah. You know, it's easy to sort of dismiss i think sometimes somebody who is just sharing or as some people might characterize it over sharing until you yes. act,
2: until you actually try to do it and that's I, the thing it's true that's true it's very true uh he wrote a poem that's in this this volume that just came out called please master and this poem he was afraid to read it what he done what he did was this was right after neil Cassidy died. He wrote, and it was a, it was extremely explicit, uh, a poem about Neil and his relationship, their sexual relationship, and um, he couldn't do it. He he literally couldn't read it at first. Then he could. He he did, and he got over it. And now you think about that, that was written in 1968. That poem. And it really was. I mean, it's not something for everybody, that's for sure. And we got to laughing about it because when I I saw the unedited version of it, the original version, you know, in his notebooks, I'm going, oh, my God, Alan. Um, (laughs) But um, the thing that I guess I'm getting at here is that all these years later, I I edited a book called The Essential Ginsberg, which is like a greatest hiss, the best of his poetry, the best of his photography, the best of his – music, the best of his interviews, uh, journal entries, and so on. Um, The big fat book that came out with Harper Collins, which was his publisher. And when that book came out, we had a big event. There were actually two of them, but one of them was really big in New York, where a lot of poets and well-known people got together and read Allen's poetry. And People were fighting over who could read "Please Master." Everybody wanted a shot. Straight guys wanted a shot at it. <laughs> who who got to you read know, it? Who got to read it? You know, it was a poet. Uh, I don't remember. I, I don't know him. You know, I, I've never heard of him before.
0: Oh, okay. So he, well, it uh, wasn't it wasn't like Johnny Depp or something.
2: No, 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 no. Um, there were. It, it's really funny because what's happening now with um, the one now. Uh, is they're doing and it's out in New York and it's being uh, out. In, I'm sorry, in Los Angeles it's being recorded. They're recording a lot of these poems or, or things from, you know, the the Fall of America journals, setting it to music. And there are some names you know involved in that. Uh, he uh, <clears throat> they want to have it out next year at some point, which would be great you know it'd be great for the book it'd be be good to have alan it's it, you know it's really hard i'll tell you the honest to god truth for me <clears throat> it's hard for me to believe for one thing alan has been dead now for 23 years
0: yeah yeah i know i like i was in uh i went to school in, in boulder at the university of colorado in the mid-90s ah. and i never mm-hmm. crossed paths with him you know that was towards the end i graduated mm-hmm. in 1997 but I had ah. I had proximity to Naropa. I, it, it was all right there, sure. but I, I was like too young and uh, stupid to realize what well, was in front of know, me. Well, you know, we
2: all learn when we do. I mean, I never would have heard of Allen Ginsberg if I hadn't been dragged kicking and screaming through the parochial schools. And somewhere, I guess it was about my sophomore year of high school, one of the nuns started in on him. And, and what an evil man he was and this and that, and... Don't read his books it said that so of course, the first thing I did was took a bus to downtown Milwaukee went in I bought a copy of Howell and other poems and I read Howl, and I'm going, oh my God, this is the most amazing shit I've ever seen you know, and the rest of that book is pretty good too incidentally for a little skinny book it's it's loaded um and <clears throat> so I would have never have heard of him. Well, I would have heard of him, I'm sure, because he was so big in the '60s. But um, back then, you know, I was hearing the the downside from this nun. What year was this? And this would have been about now. I'm I'm guessing, '65 uh, or '66. In that neighborhood, I remember the nun, and and and, uh, but I had her for a couple of classes over a, a couple of years out there uh and uh i don't remember exactly the year it's either 65 or 6 that i can guarantee you uh and you know it was, I, I wish i saved that copy of the book incidentally because that was a fairly early edition you know it might be worth something today <laughs> <clears throat> but he um you know when when i first met him you know getting back to what you originally asked too you know you you have ideas in your head i'd read this guy i thought you know that that he was angry ellen he could get the wrath of jeremiah you know but not really he, he was a pretty patient man and uh he always believed in the the buddhist principles of patience and generosity Alan did stuff that was just totally you know unheard of as far as i was concerned
0: um, like as what? As far
2: as helping. I, I, one time I went out to New York. This is a perfect example. This would have been, oh, I don't know, 88 or 89, somewhere in that neighborhood. I was working on Darmaline. And I was going out there. And one of my jobs while I was out there, one of my set, uh, interview uh, setups was with his stepmother, Edith, who married, you know, Alan's father. That was his second wife, Alan's second wife. His first wife, you know, Naomi was... I mean, they were divorced. I mean she was she was crazy, as they used to say anyway. Um but I was supposed to interview Edith. Alan was out of town when I showed up and uh I set up the interview with Edith and, and I the day I was supposed to go I went out to New York with almost no money in my pocket. I had a uh uh advance check that I'd received. And um was was uh, having it mailed. This is, in this day and age, it seems almost incredible. I had, it was like $1,200 that was being mailed to me in cash. And it was being sent to my publisher's house, overnight mail, you know, when it was available. It wasn't available when I left, because back in those days, I, I guess they still do. And it made you wait a couple of days, you know, make sure the check cleared and everything else. So, all right. I'm, I'm supposed to, to to take the bus out to Patterson, you know, New Jersey. I'm supposed to talk to Edith and she was going to pick me up at the bus station. And so, uh, the time was coming and hadn't shown up the check, hadn't shown, hadn't shown. So I finally called Edith cause I wasn't worried about having the money. I didn't want that kind of money floating around St. Martin's press, uh, a mail room or anything else, and so I called Edith up, and I just explained it to her. And I said, "Look, you know, this is uh, this is what's happened. This is what I'm going to do," on and on. She says, "Fine." And I said, "I'll come in the next the next bus." She says, "Fine, I'll be there." So everything was cool, no problem. I took the, the check, uh, the money arrived. I I went, got on the bus, went out to Patterson. Edith was waiting. We spent, you know. Oh my god, about five hours together. Um, while I interviewed her about Alan and about Louie, you know, Alan's father and so forth. And I went home. Didn't think anything of it. Well later on that evening, about eight o'clock, the phone rings in the place where I was staying. And it's Alan. And he'd just gotten into town, he said and, and he had his he, I wish I could imitate his voice because he would say, So how are you? You know, he, he he just had a way of saying things, and I said I'm fine. And he goes, well, that's not what I hear. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I, I was talking to Edel, He said, oh, Alan. Don't even start. And he goes, now listen. He said, you don't ever come to New York with no money. And I says, God, I've done it many times, Alan. Uh, and he says, Well, if you need money, I'll give you money. And I says, well. That would kind of blow any chance of anybody's believing my objectivity in the making of this book. And uh, but he really chewed me out about it. He says, "You don't come out here with no money." <laughs> and, and and what he did do for me over the years, and I always appreciated it. He'd say, "What are you What are you doing right now?" I said, "Nothing." He said, "Run down to St. Mark's bookstore, buy some of my books, and bring them back." So I go down to St. Mark's, I would pick up four or five books of his, bring them back. And he would sign them, inscribe them and draw little drawings and stuff in there. And he's now take these to the Gotham bookmark and get some money. And so I would, I go there, he would, it, in five books, he'd pay for my trip. Wow. That was Alan. You know, he, he helped more people, you know, and I, I could, I could line them up. And just tell you how how generous he was, and and uh, these are things that you know a lot of times gets lost in the, the shuffle, you know. But he was a very generous man. I never took any money per se from him. Never did that. Although I will say he has a, a um, it's a corporation I guess called Committee on Poetry, COP, which we always thought was kind of funny. Uh, and I took a loan from it once. You know, I paid it back, but uh, they had it, and, and that's what it was there for. Cop was for people that didn't have money that were trying to do something. You know, now Cop actually bought a pharma in uh, upstate New York uh, near Cherry Valley, and Bob Rosenthal, his old secretary for many, many years, from about 1973 until Allen's death, He owns that place now. He Hmm. bought it. He bought it from Committee on Poetry, and he loves it. It's his place away from New York City. But, you know, if you start on this kind of stuff, this Allen stuff, there's so much, you know, that happens behind the scenes that uh, when I think of some of the better times I ever had with him, it was weird stuff. Going out to dinner one time, on one particular noteworthy occasion, he just he he, he poked his head in because I always stayed in the guest room in uh, where his office was. He had a big loft and I, there was a guest room there, and I always stayed, which I always was grateful for because that saved a whole lot of money. Um, he poked his head in, and he said, "I'm going out to dinner with a bunch of guys. You feel like coming out?" And I said, "Sure." And I dropped everything. I, I I grabbed my bag, a big shoulder bag, and um, we went to this uh, Thai restaurant, one of his favorite places, and Larry Rivers, the, the great painter, was there. And um, who all was there? Uh, Ron Padgett, a poet, was there. Bob Rosenthal was there. There were about seven of us who were there sitting around a table. And the only reason I mentioned a shoulder bag, it was very funny, Cause Rivers was a very funny guy. I got to know him and, um, very funny guy. And Alan at one point saw a book peeking out of my book bag. Uh, it was New York in the fifties. It was called. And it was written by, um, was it Dan Jenkins? I think it was Dan Jenkins wrote it. And I was reviewing it for the Milwaukee journal. And Alan says to me, he, he says, um, have you read this book? And I said, yes, I have. I'm working on the review. And he said, would you mind if I take a look at it? And I said, absolutely not. And so I handed him the book, and he goes straight to the index, looks up his name all the time because he's all over that book. And uh, Rivers starts doing shtick. It was hilarious. Alan's got his head down. The wait- waiter came to the table. They ordered what Alan always orders every single time. Uh he left and everything. Finally Alan pokes his head up and goes, Well, we should we should order and Rivers <laughs> says, Oh, Alan, we've got it all covered. And Alan goes, Well do they know I'm diabetic? And Rivers says, I mean everybody in New York knows you're diabetic <laughs> And he, he was hilarious. And, and and Alan jumps up from his chair, chases down the waiter in the way, in in the um restaurant, pulls out of his pocket his numbers. And shot, and the whole time he's doing this, Larry Rivers is just doing a number, an absolute stick on Alan and his diabetes, and it was hilarious. You know, it's it, it just fun. No,
0: no, it's great. I love these stories, uh, you know, that don't make it into the biography, and you know that nobody, I know, nobody knows except for the people who were there. a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. But just to make sure that my listeners stay oriented, you know, you mentioned Louie, and you mentioned Edith, and you mentioned Naomi, uh, Alan's, mm-hmm. Alan's biological mother, and I yeah. think, I think, like as a, uh, a foundational. Um, aspect of his life and work you can't sure get very far without discussing naomi and her uh, mental her mental illness and institutionalization and eventual lobotomy uh,
2: uh, alan never recovered from that he says he did but he did not how could you he authorized his mother's lobotomy louis couldn't do it because they were divorced at that point and gene alan's older brother eugene could not. He couldn't bring himself to do it. So Alan did. They they told Alan that she was going to hurt herself if this wasn't done. You know, that she she could be violent and and blah blah blah. And Alan and if you read that great poem, Black Shroud, he he has a nightmare about beheading his mother as she's leaning into a toilet and vomiting. It's like a mirror scene of a scene in Kaddish. And it's it's Electrifying. He did a poem called "White's Rob, where he comes to grips with who his mother is in the same volume. Uh, but Allen never got over that. And when and when, what, when
0: when uh, was this in time? Because like I think it's important for people listening to know. Sure, of course. Like lobotomies, uh, was, lobotomies were were conducted with some regularity during this period in history. It wasn't, you know, it, yes. I think nowadays it can sound crazy, but back then this was something that happened.
2: I think he did it uh, in the early to mid fifties. I don't remember the exact date right off the top of my head, but it was in the fifties. His mother died in 56. And, um, she was institutionalized and had been lobotomized for a while at that point. And I want to tell you something of all the episodes that I had researching this book, that was the most intense and the most moving to me was when I was up at Columbia, and uh, I was looking at the correspondence between Naomi Ginsburg and Allen Ginsburg. Uh, and it was heartbreaking. I literally had to put the stuff down and, and just walk out of the reading room. I went for a little walk on the Upper West Side of New York just to calm down. She's begging him to take her out of there. Yes. Uh, You're my little Alan. You're my little boy. And it was just, I mean, it was unbelievably heartbreaking. And Alan, you know, he, you know, it's really funny because Gene said the same thing when I interviewed him. They, one of the boys would always stay home with her during the day. You know, and and Father and Louis what,
0: what was wrong with her? She was schizophrenic.
2: Yes, paranoid schizophrenic, and she would have episodes. She would wear like she she'd sit in her bed with pots and pans on her head, you know, and bang away and, and stuff. She believed that Hitler had put uh, sticks in her spine that that made her, you know, he he could read her thoughts and everything. I mean, it was really, really serious stuff. And Alan in the poem in Cottage recalls uh, one episode, you know, very vividly uh, of where he was at home with her and she's starting to go and he didn't know what to do. So he literally loaded her on a bus, he got on with her, and then went to a, a, a sanitarium. And then Louie, uh, which, you know, is, is, as far as I'm concerned, is almost unforgivable, he starts screaming at Alan later on when he comes home from work and finds out what Alan had done. But Naomi was, was in serious trouble. She was having an episode. And Alan at the time... Was like thirteen, fourteen years old. Oh my God!
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and, he had, and you know, it's schizophrenia today is is like a, a a bitch to treat, and then back then they had no idea what to do.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it's really funny because down by I go every morning. I go to a diner here in uh, Kenosha, and there's a place that takes care of a lot of people with schizophrenia a block away, and they come into the diner, and they're generally fairly decent. You don't have any problems with them. Some of them wear headphones where music is pumped in because it disrupts their thoughts. The music does. And uh the diner was always very kind to these people, uh, that had the schizophrenia because they can't help themselves. It's not like Naomi you chose to be this person. Naomi was an extremely bright person. She was a good school teacher, from what I understand, uh, <clears throat> and she was a good mother, uh, as much as she could be. But she also was schizophrenic. She'd walk around the house nude, you know. Alan and Gina going, "Oh God, here we go again," and <laughs> and so, you know, it was it was uh, it was a challenge to them. Louis really had no way of dealing with it. He had a hard time with it. Uh, because all of that would end up happening was he and she would end up fighting, because she was a communist and he was a socialist, and God help all of us when you get those two fighting, those two groups. And um, she was with, with the communist party. He mentions that in his poem "America," how she took him to communist cell cell meetings, where they gave him a bag of garbanzo beans, you know, and they'd listen to some big name communist speaker. She'd take Alan to those. But this is the thing, and I think this is really, really important that people understand this. Uh he became the person he became because of both of his parents. Okay? Like I edited the 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 letters, the correspondence between him and his father. Uh and it's really excellent, excellent stuff. But with his mother Alan learned, uh, uh, tolerance, great tolerance of people that have problems. And, uh, one of my favorite Alan stories, and I'll uh, let you ask another a question or whatever, but one of my favorite Alan stories was down in the East village in New York city. Um, and I don't remember the date of this. It was in the nineties. So, um, There was a altercation outside a bodega there. And it was a really nasty one between uh, two homeless people, a man and a woman who obviously had been together for a while. And she's screaming at him and she's got a a dog. and, And the dog is snarling at this guy and it's really, it's drawing a crowd and people are trying to figure it out. And up walks Alan with Peter Orlovsky.
0: Who is who? And who Allen is his uh, Peter, Peter Orlovsky being his longtime partner?
2: Yes, yes, and they walk into the bodega, and they walk out. And at this point, it's it's to the point where you know something very serious could happen. Alan reaches into his bag and pulls out a cookie. He holds it up in front of the whole group and says, "Anyone, Fig Newton?" and It dismantled the entire issue. Everything calmed down. But this was Alan's understanding of a lot of things. Uh, He had uh, had just such a, and and that, that comes out in his poetry is what I'm saying too, is this understanding of the difficult parts of existence for some people. And Naomi was really the model that he learned on, because his mother, he loved his mother. But, but she was so difficult at times. Um, and, and that was one of the important lessons in his life, was what he learned from his, his uh, paranoid schizophrenic mother.
0: Yeah, you know, I think about the compassion that he uh, developed as a result of growing up that way and having that kind mm-hmm. of that kind of strained and difficult relationship and tragic, you know, ultimately tragic relationship with his mother. But yep. then I also couldn't could not help but think as I read about that the word tolerance, how tolerant yep. Alan was of all different kinds of people, even absolutely, in, even and maybe especially people with whom he disagreed. Um, Yes, but also people who I think the rest of society might deem unsavory or unworthy of uh, acceptance, and then I think about it in um, comparison to our, you know, current context, and I think about it in terms of social media and the way we the way we interact with one another and the way we disagree with one another and all this different and the way we tribalize and, you know, he was. I don't know how many times
2: I've wished that he was alive for some of this.
0: Yeah. I mean, he would be an an, an extraordinarily interesting figure in a contemporary yes. context because of precisely that. And, um, you know, I think that there's a lesson to be found in it. I found myself feeling inspired by reading about him and the way that he operated. And it made me want to be more tolerant and, and just, exactly. you know, not quite as quick to condemn people or to write people off simply because... Of the fact that I might disagree with them or they might have sinned, right. you know, quote unquote sinned in their past. Like maybe they did something. Mm-hmm. Maybe they did do something sure. or say something horrible. But I've done something horrible. I've said plenty of horrible things. So, you know, I just think that there is a patience and a tolerance in him that gave space to people mm-hmm. to to maybe be their better selves. And uh, he I I've...
2: really believed it, too. It wasn't just lip service. You know, I had God knows how many conversations with him over the years. And there was one, and I'll make this really brief. My cousin, my my first cousin, who lives in Kansas, was driving down to um, New Mexico. And he picked up a, a, a man and a woman, hitchhikers, picked them up at the side of the road, and to make a very long story short... They shot him five times, point blank range, and cut his throat and threw him out in the middle of the highway to die. Jesus Christ! The only thing that saved him was it was the highway. Somebody came by right away. The police were called You know, an ambulance was called. He was taken in, and he was saved. He still has metal in his face. Fortunately, the people shot him with him like a little Saturday Night Special. But um, I'm telling Alan about this, and I said, you know, my cousin. Their trials coming up. The two of them they, they were arrested. They were found. They were arrested, and their trial was coming up. And my cousin wanted to go. He wanted to go down from Kansas to go to their trial. And I said, "You know what he did? He—he he, he wants to. He wants to ask them why did you do that." And I said to Alan, "I said if, if I was his, him, I'd want to meet him all right." And Alan says, "No, no, no." He said. Your cousin is very, very intelligent that way, and he starts explaining. You know, it's a a, mass, a a matter of curiosity. You know, he needed to be able to square it away in his own head, and so forth. Anger and and violence and everything else is no answer. But this was Alan. You know, he would we would have these wild conversations about stuff um, because. He was always, he was, he was just as curious. I should mention this too. Uh, he was incredibly what he, he was easily the most inquisitive person I've ever known. He would come to Chicago. I'd be driving around from place to place where, you know, he'd be doing a radio show or this or that. And he was always asking me what's going on down here. What is, what's the news? What's the, he always wanted to know, uh, and he was always trying to square in his own head what he was hearing. Uh, you know, I've never known anybody like him uh, that just always. He asked as many questions as he answered. Let's put it that way.
0: And he was he was noted as a young person for being extraordinarily bright. I mean, he always had yes, like noticeably high level of intelligence, and then went on to yes. Col- went on to Columbia, famously where he met the people who would eventually become the beat generation. So yes. I'd, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that history so that people listening yeah. who, who might not know can get oriented.
2: Well, he, you, know, you you start to wonder about how things happen in life. You know, Lucian Carr, who was one of the key figures in the uh, beat generation, even though he wasn't a writer per se and such, but he was a friend. Lucian was dating a woman whose best friend was dating a young writer from Massachusetts, Lowell, Massachusetts, named Jack Kerouac. And from St. Louis, where Lucian was, was from, was a guy named William Burroughs who went out there, you know, because of some of Lucian's talk, you know, and so forth. These guys all came together at the same time, and they were from different parts. Alan was from New Jersey, you know, and and Lucian was the perfect foil for all these guys. He told Alan originally went to New Jersey from New Jersey to Columbia because he was going to be a labor lawyer. And Lucian looks at him and says, "What do you know about work? So you've never worked a day in your life to speak of, you know? You're going to be a big labor lawyer? No." but Alan's father was a poet and Alan wrote poetry, you know, and Jack Kerouac had written a ton of stuff before he got out to, to New York city and Burroughs had no interest in writing, but Burroughs, and I always felt this anyway about William Burroughs. I I, I'm all right with his writing, but I think he was more important as a character, as a guy who he was older than the rest of them. And he, Tested them, and he recommended they read certain things and do all this other stuff, but it all came together at Columbia University. Allen and Lucian were staying in a seminary, uh, and and uh, that was open to students because of the war. The dorms were being uh, you know during World War II. Uh, this was in 1943. the The dorms were being used by people in the army. You know, while they waited to get or or Navy or whatever to be shipped out, and so uh, one day Alan and Lucian met. You know, Alan heard some music coming out of Lucian's room, and he he poked his head in the door, inquisitive as he was, and asked what he was listening to. And that started up a conversation. Before long, Alan had met Burroughs and 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 uh, Jack Kerouac, and uh, Joan Vollmer who was Burroughs' common-law wife, which was interesting because Burroughs was gay. But um, she the two of them had a couple of kids together. Um, and uh, she was extremely bright, Joan Vollmer. And uh, all of these people were getting together, a guy named Hal Chase, who was from Denver. And who did he know? He knew a guy named Neil Cassidy, who he got to come out to meet them all uh it it was this weird uh coming together of all these different forces well you know what it reminds Uh, me
0: of what it reminds me of is uh like great rock and roll groups like the serendipity the serendipity of the beatles all being in liverpool living within a few miles of one another or you know mick and keith meeting each other when they're 17 and you know these things sometimes these things happen and you can't help but look back with the benefit of hindsight and not see some magic in it because you know to have this many major literary figures all converging on a single place in a single time, I'm trying to think yep. of a of a contemporary corollary. And you know, I, I think there's a the the antecedent um, am I using that word right? The like the Lost Generation, yeah. you know, the Lost Generation.
2: Absolutely,
0: is the the one that you would point to preceding the Beat Generation, where there was this right. this kind of literary team and this place geographically where all these forces converged, and then you had yeah. the you had the Beats, and then uh, since then I'm thinking who, what? Is well, it, it
2: kind of melted the Beat Generation as it was because by the time On the Road came out people forget sometimes that on the road was written about events that took place in 1947 and 1948 and the book wasn't published till 57 so uh it was really you know the beat generation was almost passé by that point you know then it became this sort of weird thing you know Maynard g krebs you know beatnik sort of thing and none of those guys they were they were serious about their literature and, uh, and that's where the word beat generation came from, was lost generation in some respects. Kerouac and a, a, a writer that they met named John Clellan Holmes uh, were out walking one night and they were talking, and, and they were talking about, you know, this generation of writers and uh, the lost generation and such. An, and Kerouac says, well, I guess you'd call us a beat generation. You know, and he was using the word beat like one of the street people, Herbert Hunky, uh, used to use the expression all the time, man, I am beat. And he didn't mean tired, although that was part of it. It was, he didn't have any money. He didn't have anything. Except a bad heroin habit. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and so and of course, you know, Kierlack and and Burroughs, especially, they loved to talk to Hunky because he could tell stories and all this other business that it, it it gave them some, I don't know, illumination. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and what do you call it? Allen <clears throat> took Hunky in after Hunky had been walking around the streets of New York. He literally showed up. He, if you read the poem Howell, the guy that shows up at his doorstep with the bloody feet. You know, that was Hunky. The, everything mentioned in Howell really refers to a person. You know, and uh, you don't need to know all of this to appreciate how. But if you do know it, you appreciate it all the more because Alan was really on fire when he wrote that poem.
0: And and, uh, and he was young. Like I, I didn't. Yes. Like your book, uh, the biography put it into context for me just how early that was in his life and career that he wrote that poem.
2: Yeah. And he didn't even mean to publish it. That's the thing that kills me. He was sitting there. Peter was gone. And he was feeling lonely. He was all by himself in San Francisco, or in Berkeley, I believe it was. And uh, he just sat down on his typewriter and started writing a poem sympathetic to all the people he knew that had troubled lives. You know, it, And the first part came out in one long, long sitting. And <clears throat> he didn't think it was anything anybody would want to read. He didn't write it to publish it he wrote other poems that he hoped to get published but uh it's so funny the way that that works out sunflower sutra one of his great poems uh was written after he and carolak had just visited a junkyard and alan saw the first sunflower of his life and um he runs home he and carolak were going out later that evening and um he starts writing this poem. And I've seen the actual manuscript, the first one, you know, he's writing on onion skin paper and stuff like this, uh, typing paper. And um, Kerouac's waiting at the door wanting to go out and party. And Alan's going, wait a minute, I got to finish this poem. And he wrote it. And you know, he only scratched out a word or two from the original composition to the one that was published, of Sunflower Sutra. But he wanted that to be published. How... He had to be talked into reading it. He read it at the Gallery 6, you know, in San Francisco at that reading, a famous reading with Gary Snyder and Michael McClure and Philip LaMantia and all these people. Um, Alan got up there. Terrellock was drunk as a skunk, and he's he's pounding on a wine jug uh, in time or beat with uh, Ginsburg. And he's yelling, go, you know, after every line, Alan would, would – read one of those long lines of Holland Carol, yell, go, or yes. You know, uh, all these people that, man, who was there? A young poet and would-be publisher, or he was, he, he had published a couple books at that point, a guy named Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Ferlinghetti hears Alan read it, and he sends him a, a note saying, when do I see the manuscript?"
0: And and for people listening, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who is, what, now like over 100 years old uh, and still... Yeah,
2: I think he's about to turn 102
0: yeah. this year. But he founded C- and, City Lights Bookstore, famous bookstore yes. in uh, North Beach in San Francisco, and also City Lights Press.
2: Yes. And he, he just, you know, there's a whole book of the letters that were exchanged between uh, Allen and Ferlinghetti that are pretty good, too. The, the letters you know i always liked that kind of stuff uh i remember talking to a, a great great maybe the greatest in american history short story writer named raymond carver and ray was a big big believer in reading letters and we to talking about it one time um and he thought you know you'd learn so much about people like i'd read the hemingway letters i'd read the steinbeck letters and so forth and um that's when they would be absolutely honest right and you could learn so much no i i that I, way. I always
0: uh i always stump for Hunter thompson's letters as the best books he ever published yes
2: yes i uh and and you know honest to god it, it really in some cases some of the stuff that was never intended to be published is the best they're not uh, they're not self uh you know examining themselves they're just writing down there was one wonderful letter, absolutely wonderful letter, that um, Ginsberg wrote Kerouac when Allen. This was in like '61 or '62 when he was living in India, and he's just filling Jack in on all that's going on. And it was when Bill Morgan edited Allen's journals, and I know Bill real well, uh, so I got to ask him about it. I said, "Why didn't you put that letter?" And he said, "It's just too long." The letter was some ridiculous, like, you know, 15,000 words or whatever the heck it was. Uh, it just went on for page after page after page typed. So I got the chance and I published it in The Essential Ginsberg because I think it's one of the greatest letters that Alan ever wrote. But he wasn't trying to talk anybody into something. That was one of the things that the Beats understood. Our lives are valuable. What we do is what everybody does. Why do we write about that?
0: Right, right. Yeah, and I want. And so, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I want to. Uh, no, no. I want to ask you. I'm trying to work a little bit chronologically, and mm-hmm. I I don't want us to get too far downstream without addressing a couple of major events, a couple of other sure. major events in Alan's young life, which mm-hmm. are pretty extraordinary, and I would imagine formative. Um, the first is the experience that he had during his Columbia days with Lucian Carr um, right. and the murder. I'm forgetting the victim, unfortunately. Um,
2: David Cammerer, the guy's name was.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is an unbelievable thing to have happen when you're in college, but could you talk a little bit about that and how it impacted Alan?
2: Well, it, it, Alan was a friend of Kammerer's. Most of those guys were. Lucian was not. David Cammerer had been stalking Lucian Carr across the United States from St. Louis. There was a period of time in in Chicago, if I remember right. And he ends up in uh, New York, and he would do things like break into Lucian's apartment at night and just watch him sleep. Lucian was really freaked out by this guy. And what happened was one night, a bunch of them, Alan was, was at that, they all went out and got really drunk. And um, Lucian and Camer ended up at uh, Morningside Park or Morningside Drive Park or a park on the river. And Camer literally came on to him with the idea that it's it's now or never. You know, I either get you now or something's gonna happen. Lucian Carr took out like a Boy Scout knife and stabbed him to death. And then he weighed his body down with rocks and, and, and put him in the river. Now Carolac, he goes from from that from the river to Carolac's apartment, and Carolac helps him get rid of the evidence the knife, uh cameras, glasses, I want to say. It was it was a, a a few little things. They they disposed of them all and they they tried to uh, uh just I think they even went to a movie, if I remember right, an early morning screening of something. And then they went over by Burroughs. And Burroughs says, you've got to be out of your mind. He says, you've got to turn yourself in. You know, they're going to find him. You know they're going to find him. And uh, people will put two and two together, and then you're really going to be in trouble. So Lucent ended up turning himself in. And Allen wrote a couple of very, very good unpublished poems about all of this they're in his youthful journals that you can get uh the book of artifice and martyrdom or something like that and um he um because he felt bad he felt bad for for camera you know camera was really no threat to anybody but he was creeping car out something awful and uh that really and that was a big story, as you can imagine, in the New York Times and everything else. And um, Alan saved, because he saved everything, but he saved all that stuff, uh, and they made a movie out of it recently—a very soul soul movie. Uh, let's say that. Uh, <clears throat> but it was what, a what, what, what's the
0: movie? What's the movie called?
2: Uh, what is it? Something, my darlings. Something, my darlings. I don't remember, to be honest with you, the exact the exact uh title of the movie. But uh it was, you know, what they try what it was was I remember Bob Rosenthal being very angry about the movie because they had things happen in the movie that did not, could not ever happen in real life. They had Louie getting mad at Alan and slapping him. And and Lewis wouldn't have never done that. He never would have done that. It's sort of like that recent thing about the Chicago Eight, where they had uh, um, David Dillinger hitting that uh, court official. Dave Dillinger wouldn't hit anybody at gunpoint, but it looks good, you know. It's Hollywood, and so they put it in. And they did that in that movie uh, about the car incident. The the it was kind of agreed amongst the guys that if You wrote about it. You wouldn't publish it. And so that's essentially what happened uh, was all this stuff that happened, that occurred, uh, uh, wasn't written about, you know.
0: And it obviously had something to do with uh, sexuality.
2: Um... Yes. Yes. Lucian Carr was straight as an arrow. And David Cameron was not.
0: And Alan, and I mean, this brings me to sort of a, my next topic of discussion because this is so central to uh, the Beat Generation. Uh, is mm-hmm. you know, Alan obviously uh, was a gay man, and mm-hmm. you know, reading the biography was extraordinarily out in a, at, a, to, at mm-hmm. a time when most people were not. Like, not only was he out, but he <laughs> he was loud, and as as we talked about earlier, he was explicit in his work about it, and it wasn't yep. necessarily always simple for him or always clear cut but to an extraordinary degree especially in the context of his time he was out but then yes. on top of that you know allen had sexual relationships with bill Burroughs. he had sexual uh, yep. sexual relationship with neil cassidy uh, i want to say he hooked up with Car-
1: jack kerouac. kerouac
0: too like they were all fucking each other yeah <laughs> i've like, um, just i yep. just find uh, you know that part of it interesting Kerouac was straight, though, or at least mostly straight.
2: Um, mostly straight. Peter Orlowski was mostly straight. Right. Which is fascinating. Uh, well, that's a whole book by itself. Alan's sexuality is the most screwed up situation that you can imagine. It really was because, you know, Alan would look at it as, i am just being friendly after, you know, fucking a woman. You know, and he did. Any number of times he had girlfriends, but, uh, he was gay and he was out about his being gay, but, uh, his whole sexual, uh, makeup is a, that would be a topic for a book. It really would. Uh, I don't want to be the one to do it. You know, I've done enough of Alan now at this point, but, uh, he, uh, you know, to understand that, what was that? The great line. Don't understand him too quickly. Uh, Holmes told that to a a Rolling Stone reporter at, at Kerouac's funeral. The, The guy was being kind of hard on Kerouac and his conservatism and his old age and so forth. And Holmes just looked at this guy and said, don't understand him too quickly. And I think that's brilliant. That is what it is with the beat generation. They're not a quick read. You know, they were very different. If you read Jerry Nicosia's book, uh, memory babe, the the great biography of Jack Kerouac, you know, he really explores that to a large extent um, because it was so common. You know, Alan, he, you know, he was worried at one point I was, I was reading his journals and he knew it. Uh, he'd given me permission to, but at one point I was in his office and he says, listen, I, I, I need to say something here. Um, you know, you're reading my journals. I says, yeah. I said, well, there's a lot of people in those journals because he would write about his sexual escapades in his journals. And, uh, I said, Alan, I'm not interested. I said, if it didn't, if it wasn't Neil Cassidy or something that had a, a profound effect on him. And that was one thing because he was capable of talking. I won't go into this in public, but there were some pretty well-known people like. Ginsburg managed to talk into the sack once <laughs> the big failure for what it's worth. The big failure on Allen's part, he tried, God knows he tried was Bob Dylan and Dylan would have none of it. Um, but Alan, you know, some of it, sometimes I wonder whether or not it was just a conquest. You know, he did manage to do this and he did sleep with people. That was straight, otherwise straight. That may have been their only gay experience. You know, Kerouac certainly was gay. Or he was straight. I'm sorry. He was straight. But, but he managed to, to uh, have a couple of encounters with Kerouac. You know, because I've got to guess. Now, I, I've never had any kind of experience with Alan. Uh, and, and Alan was really funny because it was church and state with him as far as sex. If you were working on something about him, or you worked for him in his office or whatever, you were out. It wasn't going to happen. I don't care how hard you want. I know one guy really wanted to do it, and Alan would have nothing to do with him. No, uh, Alan. He, he was. Uh, he had certain standards, I guess he would say, as to who he would uh, would have sexual encounters with. And uh, but but. The other side of the coin is one time I was given a hard time. I just said, Alan, you know, you're just a dirty old man. And you kind of laugh, you know, and he says, what? And I says, well, you look at you. I said, you're leering at these 19, 20, 21 year old boys. And he goes, well, what's so unusual about that? That's what I liked when I was young. What do you think I changed? That's what I like when I'm old. And that was Alan. Um, but, but those, his, his sexual encounters and so forth were very, very, very messy. And, um, you know, the, the David Cameron I don't know to this day whether or not Alan ever had any kind of sex with David Cameron. Uh, yeah, why, why,
0: why I, wouldn't I, David Cameron just go for Alan, make things easy instead of chasing Lucian, who's straight as an arrow.
2: <laughs> maybe he wasn't attracted to him. I don't right. know. You know? Uh, I really, I couldn't say, but I know Alan was concerned when I was looking at those journals cause he wrote a lot, you know, and, uh, uh you know, he didn't want to out somebody or, or have something about somebody famous or whatever come out, you know, because of something he wrote in a journal and something that was supposed to be private, And I told him point blank, I'm just not interested. You know, I mean, that's not to be an insult or anything like that. It was just a matter of if it didn't have something to do with the important things in his life. I mean, look at how big that book is, that, you know, Don Elias, right around 800 pages. I mean, I could have gone on and on. And when Bill Morgan wrote his called I Celebrate Myself, I remember going out to to dinner with Bill in New York, and he was telling me he was worried about how I would react to it. I thought, I don't care, I'd be happy to read it. You know, I don't claim to have any, you know, hold on Ginsburg material. Uh, and I said, What I want to know from you is how are you going to do this? They wanted it in under 500 pages, and they got it in about six. There's just too much to Alan's life to, to commit. At one time, I was talking to St. Martin's Press about doing. Ginsburg's biography is a two-volume set. And they said, no, no, I won't do it that way because traditionally the second volume of a two-volume biography doesn't do well. Now, Peter Grolnick's uh, Elvis Presley biography, certainly the great biographies of LBJ written by Robert Caro, um, yes, they did well. Each volume did well, but uh, they didn't want to do that with me. So I didn't. I, I tried to get as much in, which meant leaving a lot out. Then you have to make decisions what to leave out. How important is this? You know, it wasn't easy. What about
0: Ginsburg and his openness with his sexual identity from a young age? Like, mm-hmm. what about that did you learn from, um, you know, all the work that you've done, the bio, the letters, everything about, you know, about in terms of the... It seems like part of an ethos. It seems like part of the like creative ethos that he birthed with Kerouac and Burroughs and that that sure. whole crew to live your life uh, like honestly and out loud. Is that is that yeah. accurate? I mean, because it, it just yeah, seems it just it, it seems so and, and, extraordinary to me that he was doing this at that time period.
2: Well, for a long time he was afraid. You know, when he talks about his youth. He didn't want his father to know that he was gay. Um, And and he was very, very hidden about it. And then I think as far as I can tell, and I could be wrong on this, but as far as I can tell, the real breakthrough for him was Neil Cassidy. Neil was, he was just, I mean, he'd sleep with anybody. I mean, he really would. I mean, he was a sexual animal, so to speak. And, there's this wonderful scene and Alan wrote about it uh, in one of his poems where Alan and Neil was staying at Alan's place. If I remember this correctly, he was staying at Alan's place and they got in the same, they were on like a big cot and Alan was so afraid. He was literally trembling, you know, cause he had, he really had a thing for Neil at this point and he hadn't, said anything about it to Neil. And um he he moved over as far as he could to the edge of the cot and was sitting there trembling. And and Neil Cassidy took him in his arms and just said it's okay. And that was really a big thing for Alan. Uh and and that really opened a lot of doors for him was just being accepted. You know um, he went, he went to psychologists and such psychiatrists about his homosexuality to see what he could do about it. Cause he just, you know, back in those days, as you pointed out, people weren't out about it, you know, and, 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 and so he was worried that there was something wrong with him and he worried that his father would worry that, the, you know. That he had inherited some of Naomi's uh, mental illness. Well, he
0: even spent time in, in an institution in his early twenties, right?
2: Right. Yes, that was that was a whole other game, too. He he, he traded that out instead of jail. Um, he was he had taken Herbert Hunky in. Uh, this was in nineteen forty-eight, I believe, either late forty-eight or early forty-nine. Because it was really cold out when Hunky showed up at his door with the bleeding feet and everything, and Alan took him in, and he, he the immediate thing he did was he gave him some some warm clothes, he washed his feet, and all this stuff, and then Hunky just moved in, and Alan was having a hard time getting rid of him because Hunky was hanging out with another couple uh, who were petty thieves, but they were bringing all this stuff and storing it in Allen's apartment. The biggest piece of, of anything that I know of that they had was there was a cigarette machine in Ginsburg's apartment. <laughs> and um, Alan was very, very worried about it. And this goes back to the sexuality part too, incidentally, for what it's worth because Alan decided one day to uh, uh, transfer all of his papers to another place. And he had all of his stuff piled up in the back of a car, all of these boxes of papers, and the car went the wrong way down a street, and the cops. There was a cop there, and they went after the the people. Alan wasn't driving; he was just a passenger, and they went after him, and uh, the car crashed, turned over. Alan's papers were everywhere, and when they read the papers, you know. Alan was outed, so to speak. But also, he wrote a long, uh, it, it's in a couple of uh, notebooks, a long account of the time he had with Hunky, and that was it. Well, they arrested Herbert and Hunky right away, and uh, they got the other couple pretty quickly, and um, Alan was in trouble. Yeah, that was another big story in the New York Times. And this kid, because uh, he told the cops he was looking for material to write about, you know, and the cops weren't buying any of that. So, uh, you know, he ends up going to, tr- to uh, like a trial, and he they traded it off. If he went to a mental institution, he would avoid jail time. So he goes to the, a mental institution, and who does he meet there but a, a young inmate named Carl Solomon, to
0: whom the poem Howell who- is dedicated
2: yes and you know it it, it also you know you can't make this stuff up it's so weird everything just kind of came together yeah and then the you know and then the
0: uh there's also like i'm thinking there's a million of these kind of like uh magical happenings or whatever it seems like in his in his life but uh the uh the blake visions in harlem in his early Yes. Adulthood. Can you,
2: you know, he never, well, he kind of came to grips with it, but what, what just tell, tell the
0: listeners what, what happened so they can be oriented.
2: Well, Alan, and he could to the day he died. He can quote poets, you know, verbatim from memory. And he was a big, big fan of William Blake, the poet. Uh, And as were incidentally, Jim Morrison of the doors, uh, uh, Michael McClure, the poet uh, 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 Chris Christopherson. There were people who were Blake scholars, essentially. And Alan was one of them. And he read a lot and he was also reading a lot of the, the apartment he was, he was uh, subletting was owned by a guy who was, a uh, like a seminarian, a guy who had a lot of visionary texts, you know, in his, uh, you know, including poets like Christopher smart people that he had in his bookshelves and Alan was reading anything he could get his hands on. And he read those guys. So he, his, his mind was in the right state, so to speak. And Alan was a troubled young man too, for what it's worth. It took him a while to become the Ginsburg that we all knew. Uh, but he, one evening he was in Harlem and he heard, you know, he's looking out over the, the, the cornices of the buildings across the street from the apartment he was staying in and thinking about the work that had gone into it and all this other stuff. He was thinking about Blake, a lot of things. Um, and he, uh, he thought he heard the voice of William Blake reciting the poem, Ah, Sunflower. And then he recited the poem, Little Girl Lost, which incidentally, if you're a Doris fan, you know, Morrison did one too about you lost little girl. Um, and, um, he was convinced he was having a vision. And of course he started telling everybody and everybody told him he was cracking up, including Kerouac. Kerouac was like, don't start with that vision crap. Uh, but Alan wasn't hearing any of it. He wrote a great poem called The Lion for Real about it. Uh, and uh, he, uh, he he stayed on that kick for a long time. He believed in those visions until 1963 when he was in India. He was looking up a bunch of holy men and so forth, and they told him to drop the visions. Why? But he stayed with them because... If you see something beautiful, don't cling to it. If you see something ugly, don't cling to it. That was one of his his uh, uh mentor's advice. Alan had some good ones, incidentally, along that line. My personal favorite of his was uh notice what you notice right right i I've, i that's just brilliant uh because we all notice stuff. But do we notice that we notice it? When does it become important? When does it become instrumental? And Alan really believed in that. And um, you know, he was seeking out all of these he actually ran into the guy who became his guru later on, uh Trumpa Trunkpa
0: Rympachev.
2: Yeah. He he ran into him as a very young man. I put a picture in a book of him standing. With Trunkbite, they didn't know each other, of course, at that time, but they met that early. Um, he was seeking out anybody that could help him. He was really tormented by it. He really was. And Tormented
0: um, by what? Just like his, his own psychic pain?
2: He, yes. He was wondering whether or not he was losing his mind. You know, his father thought he was definitely going down Naomi's path. Uh, it was really scary stuff. For somebody who really believed it, you know, he believed that it, now later on in his life, he came to understand or believe that the voice he heard was his own. It was his own voice as an older man. And he was reading Blake out loud. He, he really, he kind of uh, rejected the visions, so to speak. He didn't reject their importance in his life. But he he, he came to believe that they weren't visions after all. But for a long, long time, he really did believe in that. Then he wrote a wonderful poem uh, called The Change. Uh, Right after he left India, he went to Japan to uh, visit Gary Snyder. He's on a train. And he started thinking it through. and It all became very clear to him what this was all about. And so he wrote this poem, this wonderful poem called The Change about it. Uh, that was the thing about going back to all the stuff we've been talking about. Uh, that was what was happening to you was important. That's what those guys believed. You know, every year, and I'll do it again here in a couple of weeks, every year at Christmas time, I read Maggie Cassidy of Jack Caralax. It's the most beautiful, wonderful little story. A uh, very thin little book. It doesn't take long to read it. About being a kid and your first love. And it's just an amazing story. But that was Kerouac writing about something he remembered from his youth, and uh, where they came to believe that their, um, the, you know, their youth and or any part of their life was important as literature. It could be <coughs> that whole. <coughs> excuse me. That whole vanity of douluas that Kerouac wrote, all those books, Uh, it was was like Proust. You know, (laughs) these guys had all kinds of influences, and that was one of the big ones on Kerouac. And so he started writing his own group of books that were all nicely, you know, uh, Tristessa was just about a, a teenage prostitute that Kerouac met in Mexico. You know, Big Sur about him almost cracking up, or probably did to some extent, while he was staying at Ferlinghetti's cabin at Big Sur. Trying to get sober. Yeah. I mean, you know, the more you read, the more fascinating this all becomes. At least it did for me. Well, you know, the other thing that strikes Uh, me,
0: uh, or that struck me when I was reading was, the the life that this guy led. I know Ginsburg did not live high yeah. on the hog, but as a working writer or a, trying to be a working writer today, reading about yeah. his world travels and I mean after yeah. after the 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 six reading, you know, that poetry reading in San Francisco where he debuted Howell for an audience, um you know, Ginsburg was a cultural figure. And he yep, was,
2: and he took off a pair. Yeah,
0: and I mean, he traveled the world. I don't understand how he afforded it. You know, like how is he doing this? He was all over the place. Well,
2: you know, it was really funny when you read the letters. It's really funny. Uh, he was always on Ferlinghetti. Do I have any advance money coming, or do I have any royalties coming, or what? And Ferlinghetti was always good about sending him money. And and Allen would would. It was really funny because a few years ago, Bill Morgan and Bob Rosenthal. Decided to retrace Alan's steps through India, and they went to India, and they did. And both of them were telling me what a harrowing trip that was. Because right. <laughs> Alan wasn't staying in, you know, five star hotels. He was staying in in these rundown places, you know, that housed lepers, and um, you know, and as far as eating. He ate vegetables. He didn't eat any meat to speak of, because uh, that was what he could afford. So he would do whatever was necessary. Uh, later on, after he became really big, like you know, in the, the the mid to late '60s, and he'd travel, say, to the Iron Curtain countries and so forth, he could make money doing uh, poetry readings. And so he would do that, but. Very often he was—he was really maybe that's why he was giving me the hard time that time about uh, you know going to New York without any money because he'd done this he knew what it was like to try and survive on next to nothing and um, you know that's just who he was.
0: He to. was an incredibly well-traveled human being. I did. Yes, he I was. did not realize the extent of his travels. But not only did he go places, but he stayed a while.
2: Yes, that's what always got me. He goes down in 1960. He goes down to South America to do a conference, a literary conference in Chile. He, he does the conference, but then he goes down to Argentina and he goes up to Peru. He wanted to try ayahuasca, you know, Yahe, 'cause because Burroughs had recommended it. It was the most powerful hallucinogen known. And so he goes up there. He's going through the Amazon you know, along the Amazon <clears throat> without a friend, without knowing anybody. And he just did it in 53. He went down to Mexico that way. He went, he just went down to Mexico. He he knew nobody down there. He befriended some people while he was there. And he always managed to do that. Cause he was always very, um, you know, he, he was friendly. He got along with people, uh, straights, gays, whatever. It didn't matter to him. And, uh, you know, he, he met some awfully well-known people, you know, along the way, or people who became very well-known. And, um, you know, it, the travel part alone, because we were thinking about that one time, uh, talking about it, Bob and I, about where was Alan never? Where did he not ever go? Because he'd seen everything there was to see, as far as I could tell. Um, You know, he would go, he went down one time with Ferlinghetti to Australia and New Zealand. Uh, He would just go. And uh, I guess he didn't give it any thought other than this is an experience that I should have.
0: He strikes me as a kind of Zelig-like character. You know, you just...
2: Yeah, h- oh boy, was he... Able. Yeah, his... Like, oh. not only
0: was he, like, like, peripatetic and super, you know, high energy and moving all around all over the place, but he also seemed to have an uncanny sense of timing, and he had an incredible social ability, which you just spoke to, and yeah. an ability to kind of connect with people and make friends, and he also had, and I think this is maybe one of the... um. Least known, or uh, it doesn't get talked about enough. But he had an, a, a very um, uh, high-level marketing ability. <laughs> uh, I, oh, I don't yeah. even know how to charac- oh, i don't know yeah. how to characterize it. But it's you know, the more that I learn about the work that he did to market yeah. his own work and to market the work of his friends, and to yeah. like, I don't think the Beat Generation is a thing without him. I think.
2: Oh, I He's, agree. I agree 100%. I can't,
0: I mean, because Kerouac would have never done it. Carol, I mean, the, the nope. fact that it's a cultural um, industry, you know, and that it became this major cultural force is, I think, primarily – I mean, you you know, the, the the credit deserves to be spread around widely, but it, Ginsburg really feels to me like the engine of
2: it. He was. There's no question. A Kerouac had written The Town and the City – uh, without a whole lot of help marketing wise from Ginsburg, he carried it around a big bag, you know, in New York. And, uh, uh, he managed to get it marketed. But after that, I mean, on the road, if it hadn't been for Allen, he, he, uh, if I remember correctly, he teamed Ker- uh, Kerouac up with Malcolm Cowley, the editor, uh, and, and. You know, Cowley and Terlock went back and forth on it. Uh, but, you know, so much of everything, Alan, you know, he was constantly, when you look at his letters, he's constantly writing these editors and so forth and and telling them, you have to read this guy. You have to see him. He'd send stuff to people. Uh, it was really funny how they found the original manuscript of Howell, which A- Alan had sent to John Clellan Holmes uh you know, to read, you know, and they found it, you know, years later Uh it was so much of what Alan did to promote, self-promote or to promote others was real, real sense. He was a marketing agent, you know, when he was young, when he had a job, a regular job, he was a market analyst and he knew, you know, he knew the antecedents, as you said, uh, as far as the literature is concerned. Uh, he, he One of the most incredibly well-read people you would ever meet. Uh, and I remember one time uh, giving him a hard time, and I said, Alan, don't you ever just take a day off? Don't you just ever just want to go to a ball game or a movie or whatever? And he looked right at me and said, why? Why should I do that? And that was who he was. He was constantly trying to learn. He was constantly pushing himself. And um, that's how, you know, one time I went into a museum, an art museum with him, and we're standing in front of a a, a painting by Paul Cezanne. And Alan looks at me and says, what do you see here? Because he knew the answer, but he's going to ask me, puts me on the spot. And why? Because he'd studied when he was a student at Columbia, he'd studied under Meyer Shapiro and some of these people, and he learned about all these paintings. And so he was just passing along what he'd learned, and that was the thing Alan was really good about was passing along. He would do the hard, the heavy lifting, you know, to learn this stuff, and then he'd pass it on. He was a
0: teacher, just like his dad.
2: Yep, he was. And he loved it too, for what it's worth. He loved teaching. Uh, There at the end when he was teaching at Brooklyn college and I've seen him, the binders that he had of of stuff that he had students reading, you know, the binders full of his notes for his lectures and that. It it was amazing. He just loved teaching. Um, But this was one of the things, you know, it, it was imparting wisdom. When I did Dharma Lion, it was divided into three parts poet, prophet, teacher. You know, part three was teacher. And it was all about how he spent the last, uh, you know, quarter of his life, at least, trying to impart what he'd learned on others.
0: Yeah, no, it seems like that. Yeah, there's like a synthesis in that last phase of his life where he took everything Mm -hmm. that he had learned on his travels and everything. And and I want to. uh, I definitely want to to hear you talk about Buddhism and Chogyam Trungpa a little bit more, sure. Because I feel like that was um, maybe at its apex in that last phase of his life, but it, sure. but it also informed the work, as did psychedelics, which you talked about the uh, the ayahuasca the sure. ayahuasca journeys. But um, I'd love to hear you know more about Alan's relationship with Trungpa, and to hear. Maybe, maybe sure. for the benefit of listeners, just a little bit of an overview of who, who Chogyam Trunkle was and why he was controversial. Sure.
2: <laughs> you know, it's really weird. I'm going to preface what I'm about to say But when when Allen um, died, they, his office called and asked if I would handle the media. You know, because this was a big event. You know, uh, when Alan died, and uh, it was. I was interviewed by a guy from the Kansas City Star and that's all he wanted to talk about was Alan's Buddhism and he would have been so pleased to know that Um, because that was always a sticking point. Some people didn't buy into it and some did, but he, Alan has Kerouac to thank for his interest in Buddhism because Kerouac was interested. He was not, he was a sloppy scholar. Kerouac was. But he studied Buddhism nonetheless. And he got Alan involved. And then Alan, you know, after his trip to India and all this other stuff, was really into the whole spiritual aspect of things. And he met quite by accident. He and his father were, were trying to get into a cab and Trump was not feeling well. He was he was and, and and so they gave him his cab. That's how they kind of met. But then Alan just met Trungpa, and one thing he did was he trusted him. Trungpa was part of the Nyingma sect, uh, which is a crazy wisdom aspect of Buddhism. And And um, Tibetan Tibetan
0: Buddhism, too, because Trungpa Trungpa fled the the Chinese uh, invasion of Tibet in, what was it, the 40s, and then he wound up leaving country and became... Uh, basically the preeminent, or one of the preeminent ambassadors, uh, for yes. Buddhism and Eastern mysticism in America and the West in the 70s yes. and
2: 80s. He was quite interesting as a as a guy. I mean i i didn't I didn't subscribe to some of his stuff myself, but then again, I'm not a Buddhist. Although Alan said I should have been, uh, it was uh interesting to hear, and I've read some of Trungpa's you know, lectures and uh, Alan was willing, and this was, this was a big leap for him, to trust his mind to another person. And um, he, he literally uh, studied under, I mean, Trungpa would say crazy shit to him. He'd say, um, so what is it about this beard on your face? Why don't you shave? That's why Alan went out and shaved. <laughs> what? But like, honestly, for said, somebody
0: as smart as Alan Ginsberg was, I, yeah. like, I'm like i forever mystified because Trunkpa had this incredible sway over people. He was also a drunk. I mean, the guy was
2: ha- hammered.
0: He was on cocaine. He was like surrounded by bodyguards. It was like the, there was a lot. There's yep. a lot. Do yeah. It. Like there's and he was driven around by a chauffeur and a Mercedes. I mean, Not what most people would think of when you think of a Tibetan Buddhist master or whatever, and yet
2: his— But that was the crazy wisdom, apparently. Well, and
0: he was—I mean, it should be said, too, for context, that uh, Trungpa had more than just Alan as his student. He taught Pema Chodron, who's one of the preeminent Buddhist teachers in the world right now. And so— he had just enormous influence and yet was so unconventional and even troubling, you know, in terms of his yes. his uh, his method. And yet somebody as smart as Ginsburg w- went along with it. And so, I, and Pema Chodron. It,
2: That's what I mean. He trusted him for whatever reason. And I want to know what the reason was. <laughs> why? <laughs> I, I'd like to know that myself. Yeah, right. I never, ever got a real answer to that. Why he trusted him the way he did. I know he did, and Alan was certainly more willing to talk about it, but it was one of those things that maybe he, you know, it's really funny. Let me let me put it to you this way about Trungpa and Alan's Buddhism. There at the end of the, uh, well, it was actually the beginning of the 70s. In 1972, he wrote a poem called Denver to Montana, which is a masterwork. It's an incredible work. And I'm happy to say it was published in this new book finally. Uh, <clears throat> but you know why it wasn't ever published because Alan had moved on. He, he, he at the bottom of the at, the, at the bottom of the poem, the manuscript page, he writes in handwriting end of fall of America. This was supposed to be the grand finale to that book well it was he, he wrote it too late to get it in the fall of america so it set fallow so to speak while alan pursued his buddhism and the thing was he got so heavily involved that his next book was a book called mind breaths which was all about his buddhism and his buddhist studies and this poem never made it it never got published and he had, he he moved into it. Alan really was, I mean, as far as meditation, he did his meditation. He did his his uh, sojourns, so to speak, out to uh, Wyoming and to some of these places where they had Buddhist retreats. Alan treated it very seriously. And Trungpa bestowed on him the name, I believe it was in 74, of Lion of Dharma, you know, the line of truth, uh, you know, and uh, it's so, it's so Alan, you know, when he went to, into something, he went into it big time and he did with Buddhism. It appealed to him. I think that had a lot to do with it because he had his arguments with, with some Buddhists of other types uh, of other sects or whatever you want to call it. Philip Whalen, his friend, he he was uh, an abbot at a Buddhist monk in San Francisco. Uh, uh, you know, a, a Buddhist monastery, not a Buddhist monk, a Buddhist monastery. Philip was a monk. And and he and Alan, it was really funny because whenever I talked to Alan about his Buddhism, he says, oh, no, no. He said, uh, just call Philip. He'll, he'll tell you all about it. It was like Bob Rosenthal, you know. Alan would say, if you have a Jewish question, talk to Bob. He's my (laughs) expert on, you know, Judaism. And it was like that. Alan, he would defer to people about things uh, that he didn't feel qualified to explain all that well. But he was interested in it, enough to study it. When Alan died and they had his funeral, and it was over five hours long, the funeral. I was there. They. They did a Buddhist Jewish funeral. They read him the Kaddish, for example, Uh, because that's how complicated. When Alan was, he was cremated, his remains are in three places. One of them at Naropa. Some of them at the Jewel Heart uh, Seminary in just outside Detroit, I think it is. Uh, where one of his teachers, you know, is his final teacher after Trumpa uh, lived, and the third, and this this cracked me up to no small end. He had he had a, a third of himself buried on top of his father in New Jersey. His father, a Zionist Jew, who would have screamed bloody murder if he knew that Alan was getting cremated in the first place.
0: Why? Because Jews, they got to Jew, get buried like the day after they die, right? You got to get them in the ground.
2: Yes, it's very quick. It's very quick. And that's how it was with Alan. He died. It was really, really strange. Um, he I got a call from his office on a Saturday, and they said Alan is dying. He's in the hospital now. He's got cancer. He's not expected to live more then six to 10 months. And he, he says himself, Alan, I'm not gonna last that long. And I says, okay. And he said, he'd like to see you, but don't come next week. Cause he's gonna see all of his closest friends and family and all that next week. I is fine. And so I, I bought a plane ticket to go out there the following week. and uh, And they also asked me at that time, please keep all this under your hat because this is a big thing, you know, it's, and, and we're going to have a press conference. He's supposed to get out of there next, uh, is either Wednesday or Thursday, it says, fine. I'm not going to blab. And so I didn't, Alan got out, he had his press conference and he goes in, he goes home and, uh, I've got those journals. The last ones he kept were pretty amazing. Uh, but he, uh, he's home. And he's starting to slide. Bob Rosenthal goes in there to the offices that he did every day on Friday, and Alan he couldn't bring him around. And uh, <clears throat> he uh, he was in a coma. His he had a, a, a an uncle or a cousin, named Joel G- Gaidamak, Mac, who was a doctor, and he says he's had a seizure, and he's he's you know he's probably not going to come around. And so that was at that point, you know, Alan's comatose, he's in his bed. And, uh, Bob called me up and said, look, uh, this is what's happened. And I says, okay, he says, what do you know, uh, what do you want me to do? And he asked me to handle the media or some of the media, you know, the people, cause they were all doing like obituaries and you know, Alan used to joke about that. He said, ask Schumacher. He knows more about my life than I do, uh, which I thought was kind of funny. But Alan forgot a lot of stuff, you know? So anyway, um, this was on Friday. And and all during the day, people started to, to gather. Gregory Corso was there. Patty Smith, the musician, was there. All these people to say goodbye to Alan. And they sat with him. And the whole time, he lay dying Alan listened to nothing but blues Bessie Smith you know for example uh he loved the blues and they played that just to ease his mind while he was in the process of dying and all these Buddhists went over there and were praying over his body uh, over him as he lay dying and um he died at at like two o'clock in the morning on Saturday morning he died uh he sat up straight in his bed, and his eyes were wide open. But Bob said he said he wasn't seeing anything. He saw nothing. He was just sitting up, and then he kind of sighed. He laid back down and he died. And then they did the Buddhist little Buddhist sort of ceremony. They put some some kind of liquid on his lips, you know, for the passage to the next uh, life or whatever. And <clears throat> it was weird because then Bob called me up and said, hey, "Alan's died." And I said, when's his funeral? He said, Monday morning. You know, and it was. It was like that. I mean, they got him taken care of and and such uh, very, very quickly. And I wanted to give you a postscript to the story because, you know, if I could stay on point here. One of the most moving things in my life was after he died and I went to his funeral, when I came home... There were two photographs in the mail waiting for me. There were pictures that Alan had taken. One of me uh, having a a sort of spirited conversation with Mike McClure and one uh, of my wife and I in a bookstore when Alan and I were doing a joint book reading. He didn't have the time to sign them, but he, he stamped them with his seal and he sent them to me as a gift. I thought that was one of the most moving things I've ever seen. I got home and it was waiting for me. Wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I still get emotional thinking about it because what a thing! What a thing to do!
0: Well, uh, I, I am. You know, I don't want to take up too much of your time. This has been such an extraordinary uh, conversation. I really enjoyed, uh, you know, the book and congrats on the new um, the new collection of letters. I look forward to it. I, I want to say in closing and to hear you talk a little bit on this point before we sure. sign off is that, you know, when I was reading, uh, the bio, it was occurring to me the enormous, like enormous cultural impact of beat literature. Yes. And I think yep. I don't think I fully grasped it. Like I think I had exposure to beat culture because of my college years in Boulder. It was very much in the air there. Sure. With, you know, you mentioned Naropa earlier. You were referring to Naropa University, which Ginsburg helped to found with Trunkpa yes. um, in Boulder, and you know, so I knew that it had currency just based on that, kind of through osmosis. But right. when I'm reading about Alan's life and I'm reading about the influence that he had on Bob Dylan. When I, I think right. about the impact that Neil Cassidy and Jack Kerouac had on um, God knows how many people, and how much on the road, sure. how much on the road meant to Janis Joplin, how much on the road meant yep. to Jerry Garcia, how much on the road influenced—I mm-hmm. mean, you could just tick off the names of people yes. who went on to have a kind of incalculable impact on culture in myriad ways, right. and it, so much of it stemmed. From this movement. And yeah. I just find that kind of staggering. And I try to find any kind of corollary um, in the modern age. And it doesn't seem to exist like that anymore. But the world that we're living in, um, it's hard not to see that it's the world that, in at least some part, some significant Absolutely. part, was created by that, that nexus of talent and creative energy.
2: And there's still, well, most of them are gone now. Diane Prima died earlier this year. Uh, Michael McClure died earlier this year. Uh, but there's still, Gary Snyder's still going. There's still some of them alive. Getty's still going, but barely. He's in pretty rough shape, I guess. Uh, but, you know, uh, I think it goes back to, and maybe bring, bring this around full circle, here at the end, but it goes back to the conversations that those guys had in the Columbia days, and they came up with what they called a new vision. And the the, the vision was essentially developed, you can see it in the journals of Ginsburg, by Allen and Lucian Carr. Kerouac jumped on, some of these guys jumped aboard, with the idea that You know, the new vision is the vision of ourselves. It is who we are and and why, what, you know, we do and what we consider important is important. And we have to be bold enough to come forth with those visions. And I really believe to the core that that's what happened. Because as much as I like, the book, The Town and the City, for example, Kerouac's, it ain't on the road, folks. And, uh, you know, Allen's, you know, books, certainly his first volumes of Howl and other poems and Kaddish and other poems are are absolutely out there compared to what was being published in the, at that time. And I think, you know, like Dylan, Dylan talks about how important Kerouac, when he read Mexico City Blues, how important that was to him. He said, it was the first time somebody was talking to me. And then with this most recent book, um, The you know the, the Fall of America Journals, uh, Dylan, that's where it starts in San Francisco in 65. Dylan either bought or gave Ginsburg the money for a huge, your reel-to-reel tape recorder with the instructions that... I want you to do with poetry what Jack did with prose. You go around the country or all over the place anyway. I want you to recite what's going through your mind. I want you to recite what you're seeing and so forth. And that became what Ginsburg called his auto-poesy. He would recite things uh, as he was seeing it. And it was amazing, he did Wichita Vortex Sutra, one of his great poems uh, as a result of that. It was auto-poesy. He was driving through Nebraska and then into Kansas and just describing what he was seeing. It was a backdrop of the Vietnam War. Uh, his, his, it's a little volume, a little tiny uh, a book, booklet called um, Iron Horse. You know, it's all about how he saw this country, how he saw America in the backdrop of the war and of uh, racial tension and all the stuff that was going on. And the more they considered this stuff, they meaning the beats, uh, the more valuable it came because so many people either didn't have that vision or didn't have any any need to address it.
0: So that's what it's about. Well, I guess uh that's as good a place as any to to uh yeah. we could go on another four hours. Well, I know, I know. That. And I feel I I almost like I both <laughs> I feel good and bad for you for being Alan's biographer, taking into consideration how thoroughly well documented his life was by him. Like he leaves you he leaves yes. you with that blessing and curse. You know, it's like a bounty of source material in some ways that makes the the writing easy but then it there's just so much of it that it makes it a a bear to
2: well it's peeling an onion isn't it really you take one layer off and there's another one right under it you know uh, that's the way i always felt about it no matter what you think you know you don't know it you know what you know you know or you notice what you noticed uh, you as ginsburg would say um and then somebody like Bill would come out with his book, I Celebrate Myself. And he's got Ginsburg in a different uh, lens. You know? And so, I mean, most of the stuff was the same, essentially, but he had a different take on some of the things that Allen did. You know, Barry Miles, when he wrote the very first Ginsburg biography, Miles had no use for Ginsburg's Buddhism, and he was hard on him about it. Uh, you know, everybody's going to have a different take on this man. The only man that could tell you you know, and that was his take was Alan, you know, and and even he would forget parts of his life, you know, I mean, he was so busy living it. He wasn't remembering it. Uh, So, you know, I feel very blessed. I did three volumes of his journals. I did one volume of his letters. I did one volume of his uh, interviews. I did, uh, you know, the biography. I did the uh, reader. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much done with Alan as far as anything new. But there's still good stuff out there. If any of your listeners wants to do it, his journals that he kept in China are magnificent. They should be out there. Um, his final journals are very, very interesting. They're kind of weird, but they're good. Uh, they're, they're, that's the thing. He left so much and, uh, his photos, They're still, they're still developing his photos. I remember he had a great big, it was like a grocery bag, you know, in his, his, uh, place that was full of nothing but undeveloped film. Some of it 20, 25 years old.
0: Yeah. He took incredible photographs.
2: Yeah, he did. I mean, his books and photos are fabulous. Um, you know, there's just so much, and and you know that goes back to when I asked him, "Don't you ever take a day off?" We're all lucky he didn't.
0: Well, Michael, I appreciate the time and the conversation. It was my pleasure, and uh, I wish you well on whatever comes next.
2: Thank you very much. It was it was my pleasure to, to discuss Alan again.
0: Okay, that is Michael Schumacher. He is the editor of The Fall of America Journals, 1965 to 1971 by Allen Ginsberg, available now from the University of Minnesota Press. Michael Schumacher is also the author of Dharma Lion, a biography of Allen Ginsberg that I just finished reading. It's a big beast of a book and it was excellent. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Every single episode of this program is available free of charge. If you like the program and you have the means and you want to throw a couple of bucks in the hat, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod, patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you have something to say, if you want to write to me, my email address is letters at other PPL.com letters at other PPL.com. Let me know what you think. If you want to get some gear, if you want a t-shirt, a sweatshirt, or even a tank top, you can get other people gear just by going to the show's official website, otherppl.com. Click on the t-shirt in the left sidebar and get yourself some clothing. This podcast has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It, too, is free, available wherever you get your apps. Go get the app. so what am I forgetting oh if you want to send in a where I listen photo you can do that you can DM the show on Twitter or Instagram or email me letters at ppl.com so I hope you're doing okay out there wherever you are I know uh, you know it's the holidays we're in it it's not the easiest time of the year for a lot of us and I think with the pandemic I think we're all tired aren't we it's been a long year it's okay to be tired—it's normal. And uh, I thought, as I sign off today, that it might be a nice idea to leave you not with my voice, but with the voice of the late great Allen Ginsberg. Here he is performing his poem "Father Death Blues," which he wrote on an airplane flying home uh, after he learned of the passing of his father, Louis. So this is Allen Ginsberg, and Father Death. Blues.
1: Hey, Father Death, I'm flying home Hey, poor man, you're all alone Hey, old daddy, I know where I'm going Father Death, don't cry anymore Mama's there underneath the floor Brother Death Please mind the sore Old Auntie Death Don't hide your Bones, Old Uncle Death I hear your groans Oh Sister Death, how sweet Your moans Oh Children Death Go breathe your breaths Sobbing So ease your deaths Pain is gone Tears take the rest Genius death Your art is done Lover death Your body's gone Father death I'm coming home Guru death Your words are true Teacher death, I do thank you For inspiring me to sing this blues Buddha death, I wake with you Dharma death, your mind is new Sangha death, we'll work it through Suffering is what was born. Ignorance made me forlorn. Tearful truths I cannot scorn. Father breath, once more farewell. Birth you gave was no thing ill. My heart is still as time will tell